Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. Okay, well, 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 we're back in business, ladies and gentlemen. R.J. Heyman is uh, in the country, and um, we suffered through an episode with Aaron Zimmerman, but I'm not sure we ever want to do that again. God help you. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, it was wonderful. We love you, Aaron. Uh, how, is your, how have your travels been? They were great. Yeah, they were just really great time with the family. We spent 10 days in Costa Rica, which was incredible as a whole family. And then I took my two older boys to Europe for a bit for a Dutch family reunion, which was really fun. On, on Father's Day, there were about 60 members of our family, both Dutch and American, in a restaurant that my grandfather founded in, in the 1930s. What? And so it was really cool. It was very, very fun. And I think my boys were pretty overwhelmed. They kind of, my, my oldest son, Jackson, looked around and said, I never realized that only like one fifth of our family is in America. So just so cool for him to connect with, uh, you know, cousins his age and really a lot of people he'd, he'd never met before. So it was a very memorable experience. And yeah, we had a great time. That's awesome. Can I ask an ignorant question? What do you, are there any other types of questions? that <laughs> Do you they ask, exactly? Do they speak English? <laughs> like were your boy? So you're all your family's able to. Oh, OK. Yeah. Pretty much. Okay. I mean, people at my dad's generation, so, you know, their English is pretty good, but their kids and their grandkids, their English is pretty much right. perfect. Because if you're in Holland, it's such a small country, you know, they all speak like three or four languages okay. uh, fluently. So communication was not a problem. I see. Sarah, how about you? How, what's how's the last uh, couple weeks been? I mean, I'm embarrassed to talk about it just because it's been so luxurious. I mean, we were in rural Tennessee in the mountains and there's nothing to do there. And yeah, I mean, there's a Piggly Wiggly. We went there. I saw people I'm probably related to. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's basically the same thing RJ did. I mean, it was like really nice. I mean, the other day Um, I sent you that study I sent you of like the states that exercise the least in the country. Yeah. Uh, Colorado, Colorado was number one. Last on the list was Mississippi. Yeah. Yeah. And I bet Tennessee was like in the bottom five. Yeah. It's, um, <laughs> it, it, I, you know, we've, we've gone to Tennessee for three years now for my husband to get this degree. And this is definitely the last year I had in me. So we mm. all bought t-shirts at the Piggly Wiggly as like a commemorative goodbye. You know, I mean, we've done Swanee. So I see. Isn't it kind of also like, I hear people talk about it like it's heaven on earth though too. Like when you get up on the on the mountain and you go through the gates and you, isn't there some tradition where you sort of like kiss your way in and kiss your way out or something like that? Because you're entering, you know, through the pearly gates into the closest thing yeah, on earth to they've heaven. Got a, they got yeah. a lot of traditions. Um, you know, they're like, yeah, they got a lot of stuff they do up there. I'm, you careful, know, I know. I'm tra- yeah. She's holding it's back. It's a lot of Episcopalians. I'll just say it's back. a lot of Episcopalians. I'm just, you know, it's just they're I'm just the kind of person that like when I see a really like beautiful outdoor setting I want to get out of my car and I want to take a picture of it and then I want to get back in my car and go find people like that's my vibe you know what I mean so it's just like Mm -hmm. it's just a lot of 
outdoors time. And I've got little kids. I mean, I get people go up there and they do this whole like contemplative thing. There's a lot of icons or whatever. And that's cool. But like, you know, my four year old and seven year old are like not down for that for more than about 30 seconds. So, yeah, it was. They uh, don't meditate. Mm-mm. No, no, not, not yet. So I mean, we're, we're, Practice mindfulness, we're working on it, so but much. yeah, not yeah. yet. Well, I, I too was in uh, Tennessee, but I was in Memphis and yeah. uh, I went to, I saw you on Facebook. I know I went to Graceland. It's, it's, it's been a pretty eventful couple of weeks. I'm on Facebook now, uh, which is a whole nother story for another time, but uh, it means you're washed. You're officially washed now that you're back on Facebook. I'm totally washed. Which we'll talk about later. Yeah. We're, so um, uh, it was not with uh, a, a small amounts of trepidation that I pressed click recover account. That was a dark, <laughs> dark moment. Um, but it actually, you know, it's funny we mentioned this because the first piece we're going to talk about today is all about Bo Burnham, who is a comedian and he really was one of the first YouTube stars, I guess. And it completely dates me because I, I missed out on all of this stuff. But the New Yorker did a profile on him because he's 27 years old and he's got a he's written and directed a movie called Eighth Grade which is you know, giving us all, uh, re-traumatizing everyone who's watching this trailer. But it looks unbelievably good. And it comes out, I think, July 13th. But what struck me was the sound bites coming out of this uh, guy's mouth and the wisdom, in fact. This is in The New Yorker. It's called Bo Burnham's Age of Anxiety, written by Michael Schulman. Bo Burnham, a 27-year-old comedian who made it big in the early days of YouTube, has since pursued a successful career in stand-up. Burnham is regularly afflicted by anxiety and panic attacks. And in his new movie, Eighth Grade, he gives voice to this anxiety in the form of a 13-year-old girl named Kayla. Apparently, he watched hundreds of teen vlogs, you know, video vlogs. The girls tended to talk about their souls and the boys about Minecraft. So he made his protagonist a girl. I thought that was a great little throwaway. It goes on to describe he meets with these very vulnerable eighth graders. Even the, the, the words bring up certain emotions for many of us. But it really stopped me in my tracks when they got to him describing one of his comedy acts. He sort of asks rhetorically, what's the show about? It's about performing. I try to make my show about other things, but it always ends up becoming about performing. Social media, it's just the market's answer to a generation that demands to perform. So the market said, here, perform everything to each other all the time and for no reason. It's prison. It is horrific. He tells his audience, if you can live your life without an audience, you should do it and then quit, sort of stand up for a couple of years. Goes on to say, I think there are probably certain elements about social media that we'll look back on the way we look back on smoking. where We'd be like, maybe we shouldn't have all been doing that. The equivalent of my doctor smoked will be my shrink had a Twitter. There's a lot more to it, but what I would love to hear from you guys both. Or my priest. Or my, my priest, priest had a Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to hear from you guys about your own eighth grade experiences as well as your thoughts. On the <laughs> Um, yeah, I, wa- I was watching the, the, I mean, the film trailer, like, you know, we don't give a lot of trigger warnings on Mockingbird, but trigger warning, um, you will flash back to eighth grade and it's not going to be a good look, but, um, yeah, no, it was, I actually read this whole, it's a pretty long piece. I read the whole thing. It's fantastic. One thing he wrote that stayed with me was like, I'm always trying to appeal to the people who hated me up until then. Like uh-huh. when he talks about doing, you know, writing new things, I mean, which is, you know, probably the definition of most eighth graders, but also still the definition of most 35 year olds. Um, <laughs> I thought it was pretty brilliant. I'm excited to see the movie. 
Yeah, but I definitely watched it. And all I could think about was how we did Hello, Dolly in our musical theater department. And I was the what's it called when you're like the you're the second. Gosh, I should know this. The backup person understudy. I was the understudy for cook number two. And um, (laughs) she got sick and which game on right and so I was in this like I think I was supposed to be like a German cook or something um which is still my role in life and I like covered myself in flour and wore like bright red lipstick and I remember the completely insane theater teacher I was like you know you stole the show and like I totally believed her like it was just such a it's just such a painful I mean I don't know who has a good eighth grade year I feel like it's just something you get through but I loved all the conversations he has with real eighth graders in this Mm -hmm. piece and the stuff that they're worried about versus the stuff that we think that we should be worried about on their behalves or we think that they're worried about. I mean, I was fascinated by, because I'm terrified of social media for eighth graders. And it's like the question, I I mean, we, we have a friend in town right now and he is an eighth grader and the eighth grader just got a phone. And so we talked about it like as worried parents for 45 minutes, but really the eighth graders are terrified of being shot in their schools, which is like, not, I mean, I, you know, I mean, that seems obvious now that I hear it said out loud, but it's a pretty powerful piece from a lot of angles. Yeah. I, I did not have a great eighth grade uh, <laughs> year. I had a unique eighth grade experience because I think I've shared this with everyone before that I went to uh, this strange little school in New York City called the St. Thomas Choir School, which is a boarding school for boys only fifth to eighth grade that provided choristers to St. Thomas Fifth Avenue. So I think there were 10 people in my eighth wow. grade class. They were all boys. Yeah, pretty crazy. Social media was not a big thing in 1989 to 90. You old, RJ. I know, so old, so old. Uh, Freshman year was probably harder because I had to figure out how to relate to women again because I hadn't gone to school or really been around any women for like four years. And that was... uh, that was a rude awakening. That was kind of strange. But I actually found the trailer for the movie to be comforting in a way because we have an eighth grader. Like our Spencer, our middle child is going to be an eighth grader next year. And he is totally addicted to screens. You know, I don't think he's addicted to social media. I think he, he watches, you know, it's not Minecraft anymore. It's uh, Fortnite, you know, as you may know, like every teenage boy. Actually, when we went to Holland, he talked with his cousins about Fortnite, you know, in Holland who also play. And hopefully they'll they'll uh, hook up online sometime and, uh, and, and play Fortnite together. But his, you know, he would play Fortnite every waking hour of every day if he could. And when I go upstairs to his little video game area when he's up there, he's usually playing Fortnite. And then on his phone is a video of someone else playing Fortnite. And then there's on his iPad, like some sitcom playing, usually like Parks and Rec or Arrested Development or something like that. So he's triple screens. And he's also talking to his friends while they're playing Fortnite together. And my wife and I have just been talking like, what do we do about this? How do we put limits on this? How do we think about this? And he said something, he said something really sweet maybe a month ago or six weeks. I can't remember what it, when it was, was exactly, but summoning along the lines of, um, can you just give me a little bit of space? I'll get through this, but I kind of need this right now to make it through this part of my life. You know, and I thought that was sort of um, affecting and wise and vulnerable. And I still think he spends way too much time on his screens. And actually when we were on our trip, um, I inadvertently jumped into a body of water with his phone in my 
back pocket, uh, which I did not mean to do, but that was a wonderful week. <laughs> you know, when he didn't have access to his phone, he was much more engaged with us. But the reason I found it comforting was because it was a reminder that it is actually going to be okay. Mm-hmm. You know, there were things that wounded me in my middle school experience. There are things that are going to wound him in his middle school experience and his high school experience and his college, and the rest of his life, right? But that it is actually going to be uh, okay. And part of it is just running the gauntlet of adolescence and growing up. And it looks different now than it did when I was growing up. Maybe it's worse. I don't, I, you know, there was a dig video I saw, uh, sort of a parody video going back to the 16th century with, um, you know, parents complaining about how easy, you know, their kids have it. I feel like parents have always been worried about their children. I mean, my father's father told him, don't read so many books, it'll make you want things, you know, and it did. You know, it made him want to go to business school and move out of Holland and move to America. And but his father had like a fifth grade level education and did just fine. Mm-hmm. You know, so for for his you know books were the were the were the Twitter or the Snapchat of of my father's childhood. But again, I just found it I found it comforting. Like he's going to make it through. It's going to be hard. It's going to be wonderful. But it's it's something everyone has to go through. You know, no one no one gets through middle school uh, unscathed. I mean, this Bo seems to have untold amounts of compassion and, or empathy. Yes. Say, actual, genuine. He sounded like Mr. Rogers almost a little bit, which I finally saw that movie. This yeah, week. well, you know, I mean, not exactly, but kind of. I mean, he does. They they say that, like, um, I mean, when he meets with those eighth graders, Sarah, I mean, like, uh, he they, he asks them what words come to mind when they think of to, to describe eighth grade in a single word, and the answers included underwhelming, overwhelming, stressful, responsibility, and headache. And then they talk to a boy who is a competitive gamer, and he says, a lot of people just see me as this happy, loving kid, but I don't show anyone my other side because I don't want them to be worried about me, he said softly. So when I'm alone, I'm being my other self. Then Vernon leans forward and tells him, I'm sorry you feel that way. It is not unique. I felt that way when I was a kid. I feel that way now. And, you know, early on, I don't know if you guys caught the aside towards the beginning, that for him, it was between being a uh, comedian and going into the clergy. Pastor. Uh, being a pastor. Yeah, amazing. Mm-hmm. So, which makes it sound yeah. like he's uh, not a Catholic, even though he's from uh, Massachusetts. But I thought to myself, you know, a lot of a lot of sort of what stand-up comedy is becoming is preaching. Right now, we're working on a list for mm. the new issue of The Mockingbird, and we're calling it like pagan priests of Mockingbird as a way of sort of talking about all the thinkers and talking heads from whom we've gotten so much over the years, but who would never in a million years consider themselves Christian. And you have to include a bunch of comedians in that list because they seem to be Mm. talking about stuff that matters. And here's Bo Burnham doing the same thing. I mean, there's another exchange in there. Did you guys see the thing about, they talked to his mother and they sort of trying to figure out what accounts for his insight or his rise. And she, uh, Patty is her name. She says, he was just a good kid. And Burnham corrected her. He said, I was terrified of being not good. And then she, she mm. asks, why were you so hard on yourself? I wonder. Burnham replies, half joking, it was you telling me I was the best, smartest thing that ever lived. And then I needed that validation from the entire world going forward. That's probably a pretty classic thing with people of my generation. I mean, that's what we call the law. And it's one of these things where even an evaluation, even if it's a really positive evaluation, can serve as a total condemnation. 
And I don't know, I just, I saw the trailer and I just thought, man, this thing is like a cannonball of empathy headed straight for the screen. His mom is also a hospice nurse. Did you mm -hmm. see that? She was featured in the This American Life mm -hmm. episode that was about, what was it called? Death and Taxes, you know? And I remember that episode and she is so profoundly insightful mm -hmm. and knows what matters because she spent her entire career around people who are dying and families who are dealing with that. And it has to come some from that, I would think. I have yeah, to. Yeah, it's so interesting to me because there's these different like life stages that we give a lot of grace to. Like I think about like when you have a newborn, there's a lot of grace given to the you know, to young parents and newborns. But I don't think we think about children that way. Like, I don't think for those of us who aren't working with kids, we're not thinking about kids that way. And RJ, I love the story of your son because I would be, you know, like too many screens and he's always in front of the screens and blah, blah, blah. And then like, when I think back to what I did in eighth grade, it was very much like, I just need to get through this age. Like it was like me, a boombox the soundtrack to Romeo and Juliet with Claire Danes and Leonardo DiCaprio and just weeping. You know what I mean? Like just crying for like, just radio. Yeah, exactly. Just so much radio. Like, and so I'm, I don't know. I think, I think we would do right to like, remember that that's like that, you know, we look at somebody who's, you know, young and oh, everything's great. And it's like, it's a really like, we would do well to give them some space. So anyway, we should all see this movie. There's one other thing I wanted to mention, which I thought was incredible. When, he, when he, they asked him like, what is his thematic consistency? And he says, oh, I, yeah. I, I don't try to worry too much about being thematically consistent. I don't think our days are thematically consistent. I might have a scary morning and then a funny afternoon and then a depressing night, probably in that order. I think he's saying this at some Silicon Valley thing and someone immediately tweets it and says, preach, my guy. There's such power and vulnerability and sort of truth telling and uh, compassion, you know. And I also say, you know, Dave, as both you and I, as former youth workers, um, I, I used to love working with middle schoolers because I felt like they were. I don't know, a little more transparent maybe than high schoolers. And, and they, they definitely had some awkwardness to them, but they, they, they weren't sort of curating their own existences in quite the same way. And all they really wanted was for you to treat them like a human being, you know, and be somewhat interested in the things that they were interested in. And I just, um, you know, as you were reading back what those eighth graders were saying, it just reminded me of working with middle schoolers and actually how wonderful that was, how fun that was. Actually, you know, getting back on Facebook, the, the number one thing that's actually been kind of cool is to see where the eighth grade uh, boys that I worked with, you know, they're all, yes. they're like getting married at this point, what they're up to. And they're, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. But, you know, while we're on the subject of vulnerability, the next thing that was published this week that looked very interesting was by a writer named Chris Beam in uh, the New York Times. She wrote an editorial called, I Did a Terrible Thing. How Can I Apologize? She talks about sort of abandoning her loved one right after a terminal diagnosis and she talks about the Jewish process of apology, teshuva, which requires that the one seeking forgiveness first undergo a personal inventory or reckoning. In Hebrew, teshuva means return and sort of trying to reconcile with her ex. Maybe I thought this was a universal longing to be listened to rather than apologized at. But it gets really interesting when she sort of talks about the larger culture. She says, our culture is good at promises. Our leaders take oaths. We say, I do. And we're good at applying punishments when those promises are broken. But where is the space for real remorse and introspection? We live in a Christian nation. Resist all you want, but three quarters of us identify as Christian. That's the you know, time speaking, by the way. And I wonder whether that foists a redemption frame on our apologies. We look to be absolved, forgiven immediately. 
the way we look to God. But people are not gods. And I wonder in this era of facile press release apologies, whether we need to slow things down. Of course, apologizing for committing a crime is different from apologizing for breaking someone's heart. But there is some crossover. Are you guys good at apologizing? I mean, probably no one's good at apologizing. I It's something I work on a lot and I think about a lot. I've just started listening to Esther Perel's podcast, which I'm a few seasons behind, um, Where Shall We Begin, which is like couples counseling and I can mm-hmm. like be I can say like oh I'm listening to it because then you know, I'm like a pastor and I work with like lots of couples that's not true I'm listening to it because I'm married um, <laughs> and, and I'm fascinated by sort of how these couples interact it's also incredibly normalizing you're like oh other people are dealing with this stuff but you know she models a thing an apology that my own therapist talks about a lot which is like and I think I've said it on here before recently but it is this sort of like not just an apology but also like how did that make make you feel like how did I make you feel when I did Mm. that and how important that question is because I think so often you know we want to apologize and then immediately sort of move on and there's an interesting I should have an article pulled up about this before I talk about it because people won't like this but there's some interesting research about when men and women fight have you guys seen this before where women's bodies literally like process it in a more heightened way and so it takes longer for our pulse to come down and so even though it'll feel like we're done I don't know if you've had this experience with your wives you should stay silent but like it'll feel like you're done and then your wife will be like and then when you I mean I'm like I do this all the time when Josh and I fight and he's always like wait a second I thought we were done you know like completely disoriented but because my body is still in fight mode I'm trying to justify that like mentally and verbally and so anyway I mean that's not really the question Dave asked but I think I'm fascinated by this idea of like what does apology mean what does forgiveness mean you know when I was very seriously dating a Jewish man in college you know I considered conversion to Judaism and I actually learned about this principle of forgiveness and practiced it with someone that I had really hurt and it was remarkable although I will say it reminds me a lot of what you do in AA right it's a lot of the same like actually coming to that person in a way to say like how can I heal what I've done like I'm not just gonna say I'm sorry and dump you I do think he's right about wanting to be heard you know that, that when I think about people that have hurt me Basically, what I really want is for them to sit down and to listen to what I have to say and to feel, and not even just to hear it, but to actually feel my feelings, to actually be empathetic with me. And that's been a big thing in our, you know, marriage as well. You know, our, our little phrase is, you know, can I take your tour or will you take my oh, tour? You know, basically, will, will you sit there and, and allow me to be a tour guide of my own, how I feel right now, not in an attacking way, hopefully, although as you guys know, because you're married, that's hard. Sometimes not to do the attacking and blame thing. But if you could just actually say, you know, when this happened, I felt sad or threatened or confused or hurt or angry or whatever it is. And then as the hearer to actually put yourself in that person's shoes and not allow it to become a threatening to you, there's incredible power in that. And you do kind of find that it may not completely, your your negative emotion may not completely disappear, but they begin to melt away. And more than that, it really creates intimacy. You know, if you can put yourself in your spouse's shoes or in anyone's shoes, you know, that you're trying to work a conflict out with. So I think there's, I think that she's right, that forgiveness becomes a little bit too, I don't know, too facile, too too easy sometimes. I hate to say that because it's, you know, true forgiveness is never easy. But when the time isn't taken, the hurt may not exactly go away. I thought it was incredibly courageous of her to write it 
as well because sounds like she I mean she was really pretty pretty awful and um, to recognize that and own that you know yeah, we, we talked to a couple of I, I, I think like last year or something about Harry Lerner's new book why won't you apologize and Lerner always says that another a fine way to ruin an apology is to view your apology as an automatic ticket to forgiveness and redemption mm. that is it's all really about you and your own need for reassurance and I'm sorry when it's like uh, you know, effective or genuine, however you want to say, it's not a bargaining chip that you give to get something back from an injured party. And, you know, we kind of know this, but we also love forgiveness and we want to be let off the hook and we want to be absolved is really what we're looking for. But this is me talking, tacking on a plea, no matter how heartfelt I think it does mix the message. Like you embed this condition and anytime there's a condition embedded, it tends to you know, incite more resentment rather than relieve it. So I always think about Christ's injunction to forgive your enemies and just how it just nails us all to the wall because real forgiveness, forgiveness that doesn't, isn't, or real apology that's not looking for forgiveness, but is really just genuinely expressing remorse. I mean, it's so difficult to come by. It's so difficult for it not to not use it as a bargaining chip, even subconsciously. I mean, I think we're colossally resistant to reconciliation, especially with the people we love the most. And I mean, the only cry for me as a Christian would be to sort of like have mercy on me. I can't forgive the right way. I can't apologize the right way. I know I need to. But one of the things I really loved about this article is that I think at the end she talks about a there's like a liturgy we're developing about how a person apologizes and is forgiven in the public sphere. And it's become way too detached from how it works in the private sphere and on intimate levels, like what you were just talking about, RJ. And that if we're to regain any sense of contrition that goes beyond, you know, a press secretary's kind of idea, that we've got to go back as we always do in everything is to go back is how does it actually function in your own life? I mean, that's where I'm at. I, I always think that it's it's no wonder in Sermon on the Mount that you have Jesus not just talking about sex and about greed and anger, but you have him talking about worry and you have him talking about apologies. Because <laughs> those are like, mm. that is, uh, if that doesn't convict you, then you've got a heart of stone or you're just um, not uh, someone that I certainly would ever want to hang out with. And- I'll just say two more things about this. I think my biggest struggle is how do I forgive someone who I know will never tell me they're sorry? You know, so, so someone who will never, you know, own up to what they did or ask for forgiveness or even be willing to talk about it. And how do I not, you know, not that I have so many people like that in my life, but how do you actually forgive someone who's not going to ask for it? That's tough. It is. Sarah, do you got anything else to say about forgiveness? Apologies. I, you know, I keep thinking about this book that came out last year. I don't think we talked about it called South of Forgiveness, I think is what it's called. I'm hoping I'm getting that right. It's the book about this man and a woman who uh, they did a TED talk together called Our Story of Rape and Reconciliation. And it's the it's this guy that raped this woman. And they, oh, yeah, wow. and they come together years afterwards and navigate what that, looks like what forgiveness looks like what what him knowing the pain he's put her through looks like it's incredibly powerful and also incredibly impossible i mean you know what i mean like it's amazing that they did that however that's not something i mean i think that is totally of god i'm not sure that we're all capable mm. of that so anyway it it, it 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 makes me think of these impossible forgiveness situations that we encounter and you know i mean rj i think your question about how how do we 
how do we forgive someone who hasn't said that they're sorry is an important one. And I think that's actually a question a lot of adult children probably struggle with. I mean, that's definitely something I've yeah. seen in ministry. Absolutely. And, you know, I think the very first talk I gave for Mockingbird at St. Thomas in Houston, I talked about how I had a therapist that said that they would be out of business if parents of adult children just learned to say, I'm sorry. You know, so it's like, <laughs> yeah. just say, I'm sorry. Oh, so anyway. <laughs> Well, it's, it's, it's the, definitely the air we breathe right now. I, was, I keep thinking about hoops people have to jump through to be forgiven, even in the Christian circles. And now now everyone is saying, like, there's one thing if it's just uh, two people are at the same station, but if there's a power differential, then completely different rules apply. And you want to say, of, I think in a, it, it becomes almost more impossible, if anything, and, to, and you have to acknowledge these power differentials. But then if, if you want to get into the law, you know, of, of Jesus forgiving, like Jesus giving up all power. Like, you know, it's, it's very difficult to, I don't know, theologize it or abstract it too much. I just know that at the end of the day, the gospel is not that we apologize efficiently or appropriately enough, but that we have been forgiven. Um, Yeah. I mean, I can definitely theologize it. It's just like, I'm overwhelmed. Death is such a comfort. Like that's, that's like when I see like all of the sort of like gymnastics that we're going through right now to try to figure out like who's guilty and why and what is the power differential and you know who what it, what is Louis C.K. versus you know Garrison Keillor whatever it's like you know I'm overwhelmed death is such a comfort that's sort of <laughs> any kind of forgiveness is a miracle let's just yeah, see what happens. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, the final uh, piece today is the thing that you alluded to, RJ, and uh, very kindly uh, in re- relation to uh, myself. Um, it's called In Praise of Being Washed. It's written by Zach Barron and GQ. And uh, I don't know, maybe it, is, it, it shows how washed I am that I never heard this term. So for those of you who uh, have never heard it either, let's here we go. This is what Zach writes. He says, it's not quite washed up with its connotations of lounge singers in Vegas reflecting on their glory days. It's more about that transitive moment. There you are in the train station of life, waving goodbye to your edge and your youth as they depart. You are Eli Manning, and you are no longer a plausible NFL starter in the eyes of some, but you're not yet ready to go to the bench. People tend to use the word washed as a pejorative or as a mild self-deprecating admission of defeat. But I'm not so sure. I'm beginning to suspect the word describes something far more ecstatic. If you're anything like me, this is where it gets great. You spent the better part of your teens and 20s tirelessly working on being basically a more interesting version of yourself. You spent years building up something, taste, experience, judgment. You were trying to be like what you saw in the mirror, as all ambitious people try to do. What I am saying is perhaps you actually like that person now. Perhaps you could use the mirror less. And then he gives this incredible example of Roger Federer at the 2011 U.S. Open after he had been beaten by Novak Djokovic. And it was like the beginning of sort of this valley that he went into. And now, of course, Wimbledon's on and he's, 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 he's the reigning badass again. But in the moment after that match is the moment when Federer became, quote unquote, washed. He modeled it for the rest of us. He didn't quit, but he let go of the idea of himself as perfection incarnate. He let go of the idea of himself entirely. After a decade of representing some abstractly infallible version of whatever it was he was trying to be, a pursuit that seemed to make him miserable, especially when he was young, he was just a man with a bad back and some talent that he was trying to make the best of. He stopped crying so much in post-match interviews. He raised one set of twins, then another. These days, he takes the spring off in order to rest for the summer. 
And then Barron finishes out by talking about all the Fridays of his life. He says, in high, I think of all the dumb Fridays in my life. In high school, it was drugs. In college, alcohol. In 20s, well, let's not talk about what any of us did in our 20s. And now the dumb Fridays of my present arise in front of my windshield. All my flaws, my corny pastimes, the great things I've left undone and will never do. I listen to my golf clubs rattle gently in the trunk and consumed with thoughts about how some other younger version of myself would be so terribly disappointed at what I've become. But what I mostly think is, damn, I wish I'd known about this earlier. <laughs> I mean, I love that. There's kind of like a, there's a real grace moment here. You know, it's, it's another thing of like rejoining Facebook after whatever, nine years away. The people that were my contemporaries, I check on their pages and everyone's got a little more gray hair and it's looking a little more battered. And uh, some people are looking great, but... Um, they don't like, have kids, but yeah. Like RJ, basically. Oh, well, I mean, um, he's aging in reverse, but yeah. <laughs> and you think like, there's that moment maybe growing up is when you realize there's no longer endless potential and kind of who you are is who you're going to be. And that, you know, you have this idea when you're a kid that you're just life is going to get better and better, or you're going to become better and better. And, you know, just like your times improve at swimming every single year, that's going to sort of be your moral trajectory as well. And then you get to this age where you're sort of like, well, this is probably it for me. Uh, and I'm, ha- I'm kind of happy here. Like there, there's such a relief, there's such freedom in what we, you could only call freedom from the law of, of some kind. And it usually comes through some defeat or like Federer, hopefully it's not in front of millions of people. But I loved the the grace with which this term washed, you know, you can't help but think of it also in terms of in Jesus language and the washing of feet, the washing of baptism. And what's been washed from you is all the pretensions about the person you should be and needed to be and all of a sudden who you are is there and that's at the point when you actually experience anything remotely resembling love but that's where i went with this it really hit me uh between the eyes this week especially what about you guys i mean washed in the blood of the lamb that's all i can think you know what i mean when i i mean my favorite church phrase from a rural church actually an alabama church washed in the blood of the lamb yeah i I actually keep thinking of my four-year-old daughter as I'm reading this, which I know is strange, but she's such an interesting child. She's so kind and loving in a way that I find a little bewildering, to be honest with you. And we've recently asked her what she wanted to be when she grew up. And she said, she says every time and she'll fill it out, you know, if she's got to do it at school or whatever, she, that she wants to be a nurse. And there's this like thing in me of modernity that's like, you should want to be a doctor. And you know what I mean? Like this whole like narrative of like, but this has to be, you're a girl and you can do it, you know, kind of thing. And I've like consciously not let myself do that. Cause I'm like, she could be a nurse. Like this could happen. Like she could love what she does. And like, I'm not, you know, I'm going to try not to ruin that for her, but cause I'll ruin other things for her, but I'm trying not to ruin that. But yeah, I mean, I think I thought washing the blood of the lamb when I read this, because I don't know, there's a whole narrative as we age more for women than for men, I think now, just because women are in so many ways more, it's, it's more acceptable to celebrate women than it is men. And especially as we age, right? So it's like, you know, 40s, the new 30, or like I have friends who just turned 50 and they're like, I can do whatever I want now, you know? And I'm not quite sure that doesn't appeal to me as much as the idea that I ha- I can like I don't have to think about myself as much. Do you know what I mean? That like whatever version of like golf clubs and like hanging out with people I love 
like is on the horizon for me sounds like pretty awesome. So <laughs> maybe it's podcasting, Sarah. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> the first thing I wanted to say, I was just um, really impressed by the ease that uh, Dave's all had telling sports stories. Uh, it's almost, it was almost like you were a fan. I mean, Novak Djokovic <laughs> just rolled out your tongue, Dave. I think you've probably been practicing yeah. that for a while. But uh, thanks, RJ. I appreciate. I appreciate. You're that. That's very sincere. Yeah. yeah, I know you do. I, Thank I you, Benjamin you. Button. Uh, yeah, yeah. To the degree that I'm washed or not, uh, it probably had something to do with like getting married fairly early mm-hmm. and having kids fairly early. Like I, we got married at 23. I'd been 23 for a month. I was like 20, 23 in one month when we got married. Mm-hmm. And we lived in the Bay Area for a little while in Oakland, and that was really fun. And then I got a job offer in New York City, which came with an apartment. And we're like, oh, we're going to go to New York, and we're both going to be working. We're going to have disposable income. We're going to have free housing. Woo! We're gonna, it's going to be incredible. And then we've been there about two months, and my wife got the flu, quote unquote, which then lasted a lot longer than any flu should. And then we took a pregnancy test, and we're like, oh, I guess we're, I guess we're having kids now when we're 25. And I'm not saying you have to have kids to be washed, but I think it certainly helps, you know, uh, to just recognize. And I think if you mm, if you want to be a good parent, it helps to be fairly washed. It, it helps to put set aside your ambition and your sense of yourself. And, and that being said, I'm still, I don't know, I, I still wrestle with ambition, you know, because I'm a person in the world. And like yesterday was July 4th, and I was looking forward to like a really kind of um, fun day. And then it just torrentially poured here for four or five hours. And I thought I might jump out of my skin. I was so stir crazy. And then I took a nap, which is about the most washed thing I could possibly do, I guess. Uh, and the day, the day turned out okay. But uh, I struggle with that. I, st- I, I will say when I, when I really find myself getting tied up in knots by feeling like my life isn't what it should be or I should be doing something different or I should, I'm falling behind or, or, or whatever it is, then I will remind myself that, you know, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. You know, like, it's going to be okay. I am loved. I will be taken care of. I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. It's, it may not be where I am forever. But that definitely, you know, sort of the, the forced washing myself with those reminders helps me kind of make it through those times that I'm tempted into sort of ambitious anxiety or anxious ambition, whatever it may be. So Yeah, I mean, I, I also think, I was wondering, for me, my faith is getting washed rather than like, I think a lot of people, or at least the more and more I read these narratives of say like deconstruction or people, you know, struggling with their faith or talking kind of ill about God. Oftentimes what, what, I, what comes across to me is how much to them, their faith was so much about improving and becoming their best self, even if it didn't, their best moral mm. self, their best, every kind of self. And that's not their fault. It's the church they grew up in. And it's sometimes we're so young when we hear those messages, we can't just argue our way out of them. We have to maybe just depart or something like that. But for me, Christianity was always like, you're washed. You know, it's, it's a, it's a huge relief. Mm. It was never anything but a relief and a comfort. Um, I think a lot for some people, it becomes this scheme that's almost keeping uh, that, that becomes a mode of ambition, like a spiritual moral ambition, rather than the what happens after those ambitions fail. Um, and uh, the world that he's describing, I think, thrusts enough uh, imperatives, law about what we need to be, who we need to be, look in the mirror, all this stuff. This this it, it become a much more interesting version of yourself. 
to me, uh, and I, I think the church does that sometimes too in its own spiritualized way, but I, uh, when he says, why can't we be washed at 22? And I was thinking like, well, just become a Christian. But then I, then mm-hmm. I thought to myself, but that's not actually true because a lot of people who become or have really strong faith at 22 just completely, they get, they get washed by, that's what, that's, that's what defeats them. Um, and it becomes the mechanism of law. And even if they know, even if they can say the 39 articles backward and forward. So, uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I feel very grateful that to me, um, this idea that um, there's peace in sort of not, uh, we, we can undertake projects, we can do exciting new things, we can record podcasts, we can throw conferences, uh, but from a place of not really having to. And like, you know, uh, we're not going to take over the world. And that's, that's more than okay. Uh, let's just see what the Holy Spirit has in store rather than it being like, I've got to live up to the call that God has given me or something like that. That's the masthead of the quarterly, right? The TSLA quote, to care and not to care. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about being washed is, is you do care, but you don't, but you don't let it define you. Don't let it um, enslave you. And it, uh, you know, I'm teaching on Mr. Rogers the next two weeks at church. And so I've been, I watched the movie and I've been watching a lot of videos and I watched a commencement speech he gave at Dartmouth. There was one moment which was really good where he looked at the graduating class and and said, you know, remember, um, you never need to do anything remarkable in your life in order to be worthy of being loved. And I thought that was a pretty profound thing to say to people who are clearly incredibly high achievers, are probably at the least washed moment of their lives, you know, about to embark on fabulous and exciting careers and are probably thinking to themselves, what do I need to do to justify my existence and be worthy of acceptance by myself and others? And he looks at them and says, you don't have to do anything. You know, you never need to do anything remarkable. And I found that uh, very comforting. Mm, it's amazing. I was at a wedding this past weekend and the father of the bride gave this toast. I was really bracing myself for, he said, it gets up there and says, you know, everyone knows me as the advice guy. I was like, oh God, what, where, where, where are we going with this? Um, but it's super- <laughs> Never go to sleep angry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, well, here are the three things I'd say I wish I'd known when I was about to get married. And he said, firstly, uh, you know, throw out your list. You know, I, I like to keep lists. Everyone likes to keep lists. My wife likes to keep lists. Throw them out. They don't do any good. And these are the kids who are very washed uh, emotional and unwashed emotionally. Like they're just totally excited about everything that they're, even this sermon at the wedding was all about how their marriage is going to bring so much glory to God. And, and I just want to be like, oh gosh, because it's talking five years. Oh, but um, maybe. <laughs> I hope so. I hope you also like each other. And the, uh, <laughs> That his second thing was he said go to church every week together and that that could but it, I was like well that's that's a very countercultural thing to say even though these are all Christians here but he said because you need to be reminded of the gospel that's that's what he said that basically you need to be reminded that you are washed and you've been washed in like both senses of that word and mm. that uh, you know just two people kind of can sit relinquish a little bit of their prerogatives for five seconds and sit under something a third party uh, especially if it's uh, something related to grace and the gospel and then third he said don't just laugh with each other laugh at each other and mm. I left feeling like I, I that was uh, all I kind of needed to hear. It was really great, and, and I, I felt myself, I was laughing at myself for expecting something that was going to be... Did you find your life strengthened and your loyalty confirmed? Oh, always. So. Can I tell you guys a grace and marriage story that we can cut? Yeah. So we Sounds were like at, we won't cut it. 
So we were, I don't know, you might. So we were at the pool at Suwannee and they have like a big university pool. And my kid wouldn't go off the diving board because it's like a scary diving board unless my husband did. So Josh got on the diving board and it's like an Olympic diving board. So it bounced up and like put these massive cuts in the tops of his feet. Which I have referred to as his stigmata for like weeks now, which he does not think is funny and the kids don't know what I'm talking about, but it's a joke in my head. And he's had to re-bandage his feet. Um, So he has these like giant band-aids. And uh, like two mornings ago, I'm taking a shower and I see like propped at the top of the shower is an old band-aid. It's like an old giant band-aid. And I'll be honest with you, like... I don't know, even two years ago, I probably would have been like, this is disgusting. Like I would have cleaned it up and gotten mad. Right. Probably. And like been like, that's so gross. Like put it away or whatever. So what I did instead was I was like, I should clean that up. And then I got out of the shower and like forgot about it. And then I got downstairs and we're having coffee together. And I was like, I was like, Hey, uh, cause he just taken a shower. I said, Hey, did you get that? Did you clean that bandaid up? was in the shower he's like oh no I keep forgetting about it I was like me too I keep seeing him being like hey that's super gross and then I get out of the shower and brush my teeth and totally forget about it and I know that sounds like not a grace like a deep story but it was this moment where it's like we're both laughing at like our inability to like I don't know to like clean up a band-aid we're both like together in this like sweet moment of like we're gonna laugh at at who we are and like our expectations of one another and you know I don't know it's just your marriage has been washed your marriage exactly we've and, given and, up and now, now it begins now, it, now begins. it begins <laughs> with our stigmata band-aids All right. I love that any any parting <laughs> shots from you guys before we before we say goodbye for a couple of weeks good to be back missed you guys missed you Arch. How was, give us your sum up the Mr. Rogers documentary for us. I cried a lot. Um, so much. Just obviously the power of unconditional love, the power of empathy, his belief that the most important thing he could possibly do is get people comfortable with sort of talking about their feelings and being vulnerable. I think the way, you know, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The way they talked about his childhood being functionally the only child of wealthy parents who just told him to grow up all the time and never listened to him or paid attention to him and how he was actually overweight in his adolescence and was pretty brutally bullied because of it, but how that turned into this incredible compassion for children. Again, what I said before early in the episode, the incredible power of vulnerability, honesty, talking about your weakness, empathy for other people, um, all the sorts of things that the world will tell you not to ever do because you will get killed. And you will get killed, probably. Um, but you'll also be a human being. You know, what is, what is, uh, is it Gerhard Forda who says that what God wants to do is take us unhappy little gods and make us into true humans? And I look at Fred Rogers and he seems like a true human, a true human being. And, and the fact that he was exactly the same, you know, off camera as on camera. So it was, it was uh, and, and you could tell his boys loved him too. His sons loved him. His wife loved him. A life pretty, pretty well led. And yet not a life without struggle that he had, he had his doubts and his insecurities to the very end. You know, he was, uh, he was a human being just like the rest of us. So if you have not seen it, go and see it. I'm going to definitely buy it when it comes out and watch it when I need a good cry or just to be reminded of, of what actually matters. You say that for day again, God takes. Yeah, that God God wants to take us unhappy little gods and make us into true humans. 
you know, which is the, which is the, he wants to wash us. That's what we've been talking about the entire time. He, he wants to sort of put our ambitious selves to death in order that we might be free, happy, hopeful, trusting human beings. Let's end there. Thank you guys. Talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks, Dave. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. Praise the Lord.